0: Well, if you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We'll begin this morning by reading our passage for the day, Matthew 7. We're going to look at verses 7 to 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find give good things to those who ask him. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is Jesus' call to prayer. I think I called the sermon that exactly. Actually, I can't remember at this point particular moment what I did call the sermon, but it's right there at the top of your outline. Earlier in this sermon, Jesus had taught us, he taught his disciples how to pray. And so in Matthew 6 and verse 9, he says, pray then like this. And in verse 5 and verse 6 of Matthew 6, he says, and when you pray, and and when you pray. And so when we pray, Jesus taught us how to do it. And he assumed that we would do it. He assumed that we would pray when, when we pray, we're to do it like this. But now he calls us to pray. He calls us to prayer and he commands us to do it and he encourages us to do it in this passage. Now we'll do well, I think, at, at this particular point to kind of slow down and, and consider just where we are in this Sermon on the Mount. This is our, I went through and I counted, this is our 32nd message on the, the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon began with the Beatitudes in chapter 5. Jesus pronounced blessing on people who were in a, a certain state, if you remember. To be in that state or to be in those states that we see in the Beatitudes meant that we were in an enviable position, one that others would should want as well. And that was the, the introduction from chapter Matthew 5, 2 to Matthew 5 and verse 16 is the introduction. And, and the introduction mostly focused on who a disciple is. And we saw that we were, we're quite different from the world. A word that we, we used often in that context was transformation. A disciple is somebody who's been transformed by God's grace. A disciple is poor in spirit and and mourns over sin, and they're meek, and they hunger and thirst for righteousness, and, and all of those things that we saw in the Beatitude. And as a, as a result of, of who we are, we are light, and we are salt, and we are then the, the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Who we are, though, can't be separated from what we do, and so we're to let our light shine so that others may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. That was the the introduction to Jesus' sermon. And then Jesus began to speak about our relationship and interpretation of the law. He said that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he gave six examples of of the law, sometimes with the Pharisees' interpretation mixed in, and, and he said, he said, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And what we saw there is that we're to be those who obey the intent of the law, not merely, not merely externally in our actions, but even internally in the hidden person of the heart. I won't go through all of the examples, but they're they're there for you in Matthew five, seventeen to verse forty eight. The law is written on our hearts in the new covenant by the work of the Holy Spirit. And two key verses there were Matthew 5 and verse 20, where Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then at the end of that section in verse 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now from there, the sermon transitioned from from who we are to what we do, how we Practice our righteousness. We, we are righteous in our hearts, but now we're to practice our righteousness in a certain way. And what we saw there is that, that we don't do it to be seen by men. Our aim is to please God who sees in secret. And Jesus gave three examples there of, of giving and praying and fasting. All, all of those were to be done for our Father who sees in secret, and our Father will reward us in the future kingdom. And that section had an extended section on prayer, which we saw in Matthew 6, 5 to 15, how to pray. And from there, Jesus took up this whole idea of reward and he told us to lay up treasures on earth, or sorry, not to lay up treasures on earth, but to lay them up in heaven. And so we're to, we're to do this righteousness. We're to, we're to, to live out this This salt and light that we are in this world, kind of seeking to be rewarded in heaven for our righteousness, knowing that God will reward us for everything that we give up and do for his kingdom. And we're told in that context, not to focus on this world. We're not to, we're not to live for money or possessions or wealth. We're to focus on God and we're to live for him. We're to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and again we see that it's it's a heart thing. We're not even to be anxious about our possessions and about what we're going to eat or drink or or what we're going to wear, but instead we're going to we're supposed to trust God who cares for us. And so the the Lord has has laid out for us what we are, who we are, and what we're to do as citizens of his kingdom. And righteousness has been the central theme. We're to be righteous and we're to practice righteousness. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We've also seen that our righteousness comes from a radical commitment to God. We're to be those who love God, who serve Him. We're We're to be devoted to Him. We're to serve Him even as slaves. And our prayer, first and foremost, was, hallowed be your name. Our desire is for God to be glorified in this world. And through through multiple ways throughout this sermon, Jesus has shown that a true disciple seeks to glorify God with his or her life. And in every area of our lives, our desire is to honor him. And that led us then into chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. And we saw last week that we're to to help one another. We're to help others live in this way that Jesus called us to. We're not to be judgmental or, or hypercritical, but instead we're to deal with our own sin and then we're to help others. Now the last six verses before the conclusion, verses seven to 12, that we just read a few minutes ago that we, we started reading at the beginning, these point us to another form of help in living this life. The standard that Jesus has set for us is an extremely high standard. It's it's an exceedingly high standard. We're to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us. Our, Our aim is nothing less than the perfect character of God himself. And we might wonder, well, how can I live this way? How can I, with the remnant of sin still in my heart, how can I live in the way that Jesus calls me to be? In this sermon? Even with gracious brothers and sisters coming alongside of me to help me with the speck in my eye, how can I attain to this righteousness that Jesus says I must have? And the answer is that we can be this way in answer to our prayers. The Lord's Prayer, as they as they call it, has taught us to pray, and it taught us what to pray, and now here Jesus teaches us to pray. He calls us to pray, he urges us to pray, and he encourages us to pray. You see, help to live this life is available through our prayers. I think we need to recognize again that all that we've seen thus far in this sermon can only be lived by grace. Grace. The only people who can be this way and who can do these things are those who have been transformed by God's saving grace. Jesus has presented his disciples with who we are to be by God's power and by the Holy Spirit. And now he's showing us that, that we can be this way if we go to God in prayer asking him to make it so in our lives. And so this is such a, a hopeful, ending here to this this main body of the sermon the the verses after this are the conclusion but this is a a hopeful ending to the main section of jesus's sermon maybe as we've been going through this sermon on the mount maybe you've been discouraged maybe you've questioned yourself am i the way that jesus says i must be so that i could enter the kingdom Maybe you've doubted if, if you live up to these characteristics. We all see that we fall short of them, and so so we, we can tend to be, get discouraged about these things. Well, here's hope for us. Jesus says that God answers prayer, and specifically prayer that we might live according to this sermon. Especially the prayer that asks and seeks and knocks with the request that God would fulfill this righteousness in our lives and i think it's really important to understand these verses in our, in the context this way because if we separate these verses from their context then this gets this kind of turns into an almost universal promise that god will give whatever anyone asks but that's not at all what jesus is saying or what jesus is talking about to come to this passage and think if i ask for money it will be given to me Or if I seek treasures on earth, I will find them. Or if if I knock on the door for a new car, it will be opened up to me. That that kind of thinking, that kind of prayer is utterly ridiculous. And so to see anything here other than a request to have this God-centered righteousness is taking these verses out of context. Jesus has taught us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And now he's saying, as we do that, God will answer our prayers. And so in our passage, we're going to see four elements of Jesus' call to prayer. Four elements of Jesus' call to prayer. We're going to see in verse 7 the exhortation to pray. In verse 8, we'll see the encouragement to pray. Verses 9 to 11 are going to be the example of prayer. And we see that example of a a father and his son compared to the example of, of God and how he acts and what he does. And then fourthly, we're going to see the entreaty of prayer. What are, what are we actually asking for? We're asking that what the, the summation that we see in verse 12 would be real in our lives. And so that's the entreaty of prayer. I think this is one of the best passages on prayer in Scripture. And it should, it should challenge us to pray. It should encourage, encourage us to pray. It should motivate us to pray. Here we have incredible promises. God answers prayer. And so it should give us hope as we seek to live out what Jesus has called us to in this sermon. And so let's look at number one. Let's look at this exhortation to pray in verse seven. The, the exhortation to pray. Verse seven again says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock, and it will be opened to you. This is a, a commandment here. It's actually a, a threefold commandment. It's a, a, a commandment with a wonderful promise attached. Ask, seek, knock. Ask is a word that's often used for prayer. And, and actually, just to, just to show you this a little bit, let's go to Colossians chapter one as we get started here. And we'll just see that that often... Asking is synonymous with prayer. So go to the book of Colossians. Chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10 are a a wonderful little prayer that Paul prays. It says in verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking... That you may be filled with with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is a prayer that would be very much in line with what we are asking about in the passage that we see. This is this is what we should ask for ourselves. And we see it here in Colossians, and we see it in our passage as well. But notice that that Paul says, we pray, and then he says, asking. We pray for you, asking. And so part of prayer is just asking for something from God. Mark 11 and verse 24 says, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer. And so there we have, again, the verb asking. But whatever you ask in prayer, Jesus says, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now I want you to turn now just to the Gospel of John and I want to just look at some, some parallel passages. There's some, some great prayer promises in John and they're all, they all use this, this verb to ask. And so prayer is, or at least a part of prayer is, is asking God to do things in our lives and when He answers those things, He, He fulfills those things in our lives. And so John and, and chapter 14, Jesus says, says this John uh, John 14 and verse 13 he says whatever you ask in my name this I will do that the father may be glorified in the son if you ask me anything in my name I will do it then look at John 15 and verse 17 or so, sorry let's start with verse 7 John 15 verse 7 Jesus says if you abide in me and my words abide in you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Or John 15 and verse 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And then John and 16 and verse 24, again, Jesus tells his disciples, until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And so Jesus invites us and he even commands us to ask. You go back to Matthew, I guess now, Matthew chapter chapter 7 and verse 7. So we saw there ask, that word just is very simple, just means to ask for something in any kind of context, often in prayer, but even for other kinds of things as well. The next word there is seek. And seek might be a slightly stronger word than ask. It means to to try to find something. And it was used in that key verse in Matthew 6 and verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And there's an urgency to this word to seek. It, it means to strive for something. It means to, to aim at something, to devote serious effort towards one's goal. And the seeking that Jesus is talking about here is done in prayer by asking God. And so we're to, we're to ask and we're to seek. And then the next one is knock and knock kind of Pictures us right outside desiring entry into a specific place. And so you might think about this, you might think of, of asking directions for, to a place and then, and then seeking the house and then knocking on the door. And all of these verbs, ask, seek, and knock, come together as a picture of prayer. And I, I don't think necessarily we're, we're meant to see any, any progress here or any different kinds of prayer in the words. It's just three words that represent prayer. Ask, seek, and knock. Ask shows that you don't have something. To seek shows that you don't know where it is, and to knock shows that you aren't in. And together they show a dependence on God. The disciple of Christ should always have a sense of need. We should be in a continual prayer asking God to help us to honor Him in in any and every situation in our lives. And the commands ask, seek and knock are all in the present tense which shows that, that these are to be our continual state. We're to be continually asking and seeking and knocking. And like we saw at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We aren't satisfied with where we are and so we we keep asking for more we don't have as much righteousness as we would want and so we we ask for more and we're we're seeking more and we're saying let me into further degrees of holiness and and godliness and are we're, we're knocking on the door for those things and to make it really practical let me let me put it this way we're to obey everything that jesus commanded us in this sermon we're to love our enemies. We're to pray for our persecutors. We're to be truthful in our words. Every Everything that Jesus has said, and, and while we move forward in obedience, we should pray that God transforms our hearts so that we don't, we don't just do what he calls us to do, but we we are who he calls us to be in our hearts. And so we're to obey the Lord in these things, but asking him to transform our hearts so that we really do love our enemies, even our enemies, even the wicked. And so we're to to be continually seeking for this righteousness, asking God to transform us by his grace, asking him that he might help us to please him in any and every situation. And so that's the the exhortation. And now some encouragement. Look at these wonderful promises. Look again at verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. Verse eight, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And so this is number two in our outline. Number two, the encouragement to pray. Mostly focused on, on verse eight here, but also seeing those promises in verse seven. Verse 7 says, it will be given to you, you will find, and it will be open to you. Verse 8 goes even further by saying that this applies to everyone. Everyone who does these things will receive those benefits. And again, we need to be careful how we interpret this. We can't say that everyone who asks for anything will receive it without exception. And just as you think about that, listen to how John Stott explained this. This is a, a little bit of a longer quote, but listen to this. He says, quote, it is absurd to suppose that the promise ask and it shall be given to you is an absolute pledge with no strings attached. That knock and it will be open to you is an open sesame to every closed door without exception. And that by the, the waving of a prayer wand, any wish will be granted and every dream will come true. The idea is ridiculous. It would turn prayer into magic. The person who prays into a magician like Aladdin and God into our servant who appears instantly to do our bidding like Aladdin's genie every time we rub our little prayer lamp. End quote. Uh, Another um, commentator, Charles Quarles, quoting Stott. I actually don't have John Stott's book on the Sermon on the Mount, but he said this, quote, Stott also noted that if... Jesus promised to grant every single request expressed in prayer. The wise person would never pray again because he recognizes that he lacks the insight to know what is truly best in all circumstances. Martin Lloyd Jones said about this idea that, that this isn't just a kind of open-ended promise without any exceptions or without any context. He says, quote, Martin Lloyd Jones, quote, I thank God that that he is not prepared to do anything that I may chance to ask him. And I say that as a result of my own past experience. And a little bit later, he says it again. He says, so I thank God that this is not a universal promise and that God is not going to grant me my every desire and request, end quote. quote. And so the, the context sets the limit on the promise. We're promised that everyone who asks with a sincere desire to live the righteousness of the Sermon on the Mount will receive help to do it. We might even do well, I think, as we think about this, we might even do well to ask God for the sincere desire to live that way. And I think that's a prayer that God will answer. Lord, give me the desire to live according to what you commanded me in this sermon. But no one is excluded from this. This is an open invitation. This is whoever, to to everyone who wants this, there's this invitation, everyone who asks will receive. And so we could ask, do you want to enter by the narrow gate with the few? Looking kind of ahead to verse 13, do you want to enter by the narrow gate with the few? Or do you want to be on the narrow way in verse 14 that leads to life? If you do, here's a promise to cling to. This is a an invitation to come to God, your Father, for help with anything and everything that we're commanded to in this sermon. And the promise, again, is for everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Isn't that a great encouragement to prayer? Isn't that a great encouragement that, that if you ask, you, God will grant it. If you seek these things, you will find them. If you knock, it will be opened. And so we know that we aren't wasting our time in prayer, that God will answer. Now, it doesn't mean that, that, that life is always going to be easy. God may answer this kind of a prayer. And how, when we think about how does God answer a prayer like this? Well, very likely through trials by helping us to grow through trials, very likely by, by bringing conviction of sin into our lives or by showing us the to a greater extent our need of holiness and our lack thereof. God knows exactly what we need to grow us to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And he promises that if we ask, he will do it. And now to encourage us even further, Jesus illustrates this for us. In the following verses, this is number three in our outline. The third element in Jesus' call to prayer. Number three, the example of prayer. In verses 9 to 11, 11, the example of prayer. And what we see here is an example or an an illustration of prayer in, in the relationship between children and their parents. Again, verse 7 said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And verse 8 now further explains how this works. N- note the word for there. For everyone, Jesus is ex- explaining further. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then verses 9 to 11 say the same thing in another way. Look at look at how verse 9 and 10 begin with that word, So. Or sorry, the, the word "or." I'm having trouble speaking here today, but um, hopefully you're you're getting the right words in your mind. Um, so look at look at verse nine. Look at verse nine. It says, "Or which one of you?" And then again in verse ten, "Or if he asks for a fish." We we might kind of understand that word "or" to or to be something like this. We we might say "or" to put it another way, or in in other words. Jesus Jesus gives us a faith-building example here in verses 9 to 11. He says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, where it says, which of you? We could translate it: Who from among you a man? Or who from among you being a man? The, the New American Standard says: Or or what man is there among you? Now, whenever we see this construction, this this who from among you construction, what what we are expect is a, a strong negative answer. None of us would, would ever do this. That's kind of the response that Jesus is, is expecting here. Which one of you, if his son asked for bread, and the answer is none of us, Lord, none of us would do this thing. We saw this same construction already in 6 and verse 27, it, where it says, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And obviously, nobody can add to his lifespan by, by being anxious. And in the same way, no one would give his son a stone if he asked for bread. This would never happen. In the ancient Near East, stones looked like uh, little loaves of bread. There was was types of stones that looked very similar to the the size and shape of the the loaves of bread that they make. And it would be possible to confuse those stones and bread. Remember uh, earlier in the sermon or earlier in Matthew, the, the devil asked Jesus to turn the stones into bread and those stones likely looked like little loaves of bread and apparently there was uh, some kinds of fish in the Medi- in the in the galilean sea that that maybe eel or or certain catfish that looked like uh, a snake but no parent no no man would ever give their son a snake if he asked for fish bread and fish were common foods and so if a child asked for food Dad wouldn't give what isn't food. And verse 11 brings the point home, if you being evil, if if you, a man who are evil, give good gifts, how much more will God? This is a a how much more saying. It's it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. And so we see on the one hand how a, a man being evil treats his children how a, a disciple of the Lord being evil yet having remaining sin on them a, a man how does he treat his children and we see that Jesus's disciples would feed their children they would they would never feed them rocks or snakes or Luke 11 the parallel passage there includes scorpions it would it would never happen even though we are evil even though we are still subject to the evil desires of our flesh still we feed our children. And as a, a little aside here, notice that Jesus excludes himself from the charge of being evil. He specifically says, you being evil, not, not we being evil. So on, on the one hand, then, we, we have a man. He's evil. He's corrupted by sin. Even if he is a disciple of the Lord Jesus, he would never give a child who asked him for food something that is not food. And on the other hand, we have God. He is infinitely above man. He is not a man. He is holy. He is not evil. How will he, how will God care for his children? What would he give for their spiritual sustenance if they asked him for spiritual sustenance, for help in, in living the way that he has called them to live? How will he respond when you ask him for good things? Remember, he's your father in heaven. And if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have been adopted into God's family. He is your father and you are his son. Now, verse 11 limits this prayer to the the children of God. And, and so we need to ask, I think at this point, how can we become children of God? or Or how can we be sure that we are children of God? How can we be sure that this these promises apply to us. And and to do that, I want you to turn to John chapter 1. So let's turn that to John chapter 1 as we ask this question, how can we be sure that we are the children of God or how can we become God's children? And the Gospel of John kind of begins with a a nice little verse that explains that and, and opens that up for us. So let's turn there. John chapter 1, starting at verse 11. Apostle John says there in verse 11, he says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So John there, he says, he came to his own. And so we need to ask, well, who came? Well, John calls him in verse one, John calls him the word. It says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word was in the beginning. He existed. He was with God and he was God. He was God and yet he was also distinct from God. He was he in the beginning was the word and the word was God And the word, sorry, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In verse 14, we get an even more clearer glimpse. John kind of holds off telling us who the word is as he kind of works through this passage. But in, in verse 14, we get a, a, another glimpse of who John is speaking about. In verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the word who existed in the beginning with God and, and who existed in the beginning as God, the creator of the world, he became flesh and he dwelt among us. He dwelt with John, the apostle, and with his associates. He is the, the son of God, the only son from the father. The, the new American standard says the only begotten from the father. And then in verse John, in verse 17, John removes all doubt that he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, let's go back to verse 11. We were just kind of seeing who is this? Who who are we speaking about? Who's John talking about? But he, this, this, this Lord Christ, the son of God, who, who is God and yet is, is separate from God. He is the person of the son Part of the, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, He came to His own. He came to the Jews. And they, for the most part, did not receive Him. But it says, but to all who did receive Him, He gave the right or the authority to become the children of God. To receive Him is to accept Him and His message. It's to believe in His name, to trust in Him. And those who believe Christ and receive Him, it says, they were born from God. Note, note the past tense. They, they were born from God. And that fits well with what John says in John chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but John 3 verse 3 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And again, Jesus says in verse 5 there, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so you must be born again. How can you be a child of God? You, you must be born again. You must be born of God. And with that, you must also receive Christ and trust in him. The new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so you must trust Christ and, and turn from sin and be born again by the Holy Spirit. And John teaches both of those side by side throughout the gospel. And we can't spend much time today reconciling those two things, but on the one hand, you cannot save yourself and you cannot make yourself born again. That's something that the Father must do. Again, look at verse 13 there. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not of blood means that, the, that we were born not through human lineage, Not through your parents. And I think that's important for the children. You, you, you yourselves, children need to be born again. Even though your parents are, are Christians, that's not good enough. That doesn't make you a Christian. You need to be born and, and you, and you don't get that, that new birth through the lineage of your parents because your parents are Christian parents. But then John says it's not even of the will of the flesh. It's not through your own unregenerate, unsaved will. It's not through your own will that you are born again. Then he says it's not of the will of man. And that's the idea is it's not through other people's will. Your parents can't will you to be born again. Your, I can't will you to be born again. That, that is, there's nothing that I can do to make that happen. That, but, so you were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The, these people that John described in verse 12 were born of God in verse 13. And so on the one hand, you cannot save yourself. You must be born again. You, you can't make yourself born again. But on the other hand, you must believe. You must turn from your sin. You must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that I reconcile it is that, that God works through the gospel call. And so, so I call people to do what they cannot do. But as I do that, I look to God to save. And then if you or I or someone else repents and believe, we can know that God saved us by his grace. Like it says in in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And so when someone receives Jesus, we can say that the Holy Spirit has worked in their life. And that person has become a child of God. I like what one one uh, author and I don't remember where I heard this from or where I got this from but he said that on the on the front of the of the gate into heaven there's a sign that says whosoever will may come and as you kind of walk through that that sign and you turn around and look on the other side it says elect from the foundation of the world and so there's this invitation to whosoever will but we know it's by the power of the holy spirit that god makes us willing to come to him and so I just urge you then to to be born again you 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 uh, need to then you say I can't do it well you're commanded to do it by God God tells you to repent and believe the gospel and 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 with that then you might say well I can't do it well then ask God to save you and so children, again, I would urge you, or if you're here today and you're not saved, you're not born again, ask God to save you. And I think the promises of this passage that we've been looking at, Matthew 7, apply to you, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you. Or, or Romans ten thirteen says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you aren't born again, there, these two things are for you. Repent and believe in the gospel and ask God to save you. And remember his promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you're trusting Christ and you have received him as Lord, and if you have been born again, then it's the, the same Holy Spirit that gives you assurance that you're the children of God. And so let, let's go to, to Romans chapter 8 and let's just look at a few verses in Romans chapter 8. Again, we're asking here, well, how can I know that these promises apply to me? How can I know that I'm a child of God? Well, John said that if we repent and believe, if, if we are born again, then we have the right to become children of God. Romans 8 and verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And so the Spirit of God is, is a, a sign to us that we are the children of God. If we have the Spirit of God, that means that we have been born again. And if we're born again and we have this Spirit, this Spirit makes us recognize that God is our Father. The Spirit bears witness and He gives us assurance and confidence that we are God's children. And how does the Holy Spirit do that? Well, He does it by bearing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives by growing us to be like Christ. And so the more that we're transformed, the more assurance we have that, that we are a child of God, and the more we have this assurance that we're the child of God, the more that we're going to see God answering our prayers. Look at the next verse, verse 17. It says, And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so if we are children, we are heirs. And we will share in the inheritance with Christ. And if we are heirs, if we are God's children and heirs, then what a a promise we have from him. And even look at verse chapter 8 and look at verse 32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us All things. So that's our confidence as God's children. We are heirs. God gave his son for us. God has worked by his spirit to make us born again. That that Holy Spirit that lives in us gives us assurance that we are God's children. And if we are God's children, then the promise of Matthew 7, 9 to 11 is that God will give us good things. And so we could put the comparison and we can go back to Matthew then. We can put it this way, the, the example, the comparison, it goes like this. Just like an earthly human father gives his children food when they ask him, so God will give his children the good things that they ask for. It's, it's a how much more. In fact, uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said something in one, in his commentary on this. He said, he said, times that by infinity, and that's how God is going to treat his children. And so we should have this recognition He's our Father. Look at what He's done for us. He gave His Son for us. And if He has done all of this for us, surely He will answer our prayers to help us so that we can live the way that He has commanded us to live. Just think about it. We're asking our Father to help us live The people will see our good works and glorify Him. And surely God will give us whatever we need if we ask in His name and if we ask it for his glory. And so this is a great encouragement in our prayers. Now let's ask another question here just to kind of summarize this point. What, what are the good things that God will give? What are the good things? Well, this, this verse isn't exactly specific and so we shouldn't limit it. God, God will answer all kinds of prayer. And the, the parallel passage in Luke 11 says that God will give the Holy Spirit. Luke eleven thirteen. Listen to this. It says, "If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him?" And so God regenerates us, and He gives us the Holy Spirit, and then He enables us to live for Him by the the work of the Holy Spirit in our in our lives, by by His grace and power in our lives. What are the good things? Well. Some of them might include things like this. Well, he, he opens our eyes to understand his word. He opens our eyes to, to live out his word, to see wonderful things in his law. And he brings people into our lives to show us Christ and to help us live the, the Christian life the way that he calls us to. And so he brings teachers and, and preachers and fellow brothers and sisters and th- those who, who put Christ on display for us into our lives. He brings trials into our lives to help us depend on Him more. And He disciplines us. That might even be part of the answer to this prayer. He disciplines us when He goes, when we go astray. He teaches us. He encourages us. All of these things and more are the good things that God gives His children in answer to prayer. And so that was number three then, the example of prayer. Number four, let's look at the entreaty of prayer. What are we, what are we praying for? This is the fourth element of Jesus' call to prayer, and I I called it the entreaty of prayer. Verse 12, it says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Verse 12 is the summary of the the body of the sermon. Everything after verse 12, again, is the conclusion. But even though as as a summary verse this This really fits on its own. It fits here as well because as we've seen, this call to prayer is a call to pray for help to live this sermon out. This verse is a a summary then of of what we should ask for, what we should seek, and what we should knock on. What we should should search for in our prayers, what we're asking for. The word translated in the, the ESV, so, so whatever you wish, that word is it's typically translated, therefore. Jesus is saying, because of everything I said to you so far in this sermon, here is how you should live. Because of everything I said, here is how you should live. And we could even especially include the prayer. Because of how God will give to everyone who asks, Because he who seeks finds, because the one who knocks it will be open to him, therefore, here is how you ought to live. Because God answers prayer, live according to verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This has been called the golden rule. Uh, Roman Emperor Alexander Severus, he, who wasn't even a Christian, he had this verse, he was so impressed by this verse that he inscribed it in gold on the wall in his throne room and it became known from then on as the golden rule. Before Jesus, this rule was was known in a, in a negative form, so, so this kind of predates Jesus in a, in a negative form, the book of, of Tobit, which is a, an apocryphal book. Um, not part of Scripture, but it was it was you know before the time of Jesus. It says it says what you hate, do not do to anyone. What you hate, do not do to anyone. And uh, Charles Quarles kind of cites this example of of two rabbis, kind of maybe a little bit before or or contemporaneous with Jesus. I, I forget the actual date of these rabbis, but you've probably heard of them, Shemai and Hillel. Um, there's this story of of what happened with them. A, a certain heathen came before Shemai. I'm just quoting from Charles Quarles here, but a, a certain heathen came before Shemai and said to him, "Make me a proselyte on condition that you teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot." And so this guy says, "I'm gonna I'm gonna convert to to Judaism, but you got to teach me the whole Torah in the in the length of time that I could stand on one foot." So I don't got long here to to for you to convert me. And apparently, Shammai had a, a builder's cubit in his hand, like a, a measurement stick, and he 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 pushed the guy away from him. Get get away from me, you you dirty heathen! And he he separated. He he repulsed him. It says, with the builder's cubit which was in his hand. And so, kind of get away from me. And he he kind of shunned the guy. Not going to do that. Well, then this guy apparently went before Rabbi Hillel, and he said to him the same thing. And Rabbi Hillel summarized the law this way. He says, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole Torah, while the rest is commentary thereon. Go and learn it, is what apparently Rab- Rabbi Hillel said. And so this was in the, a negative form before Jesus. But Jesus was the first to ever put this into the positive way. But if you think about it, the, the negative version isn't nearly as demanding as what Jesus calls us to do. Um, you know, if you think about it, you could you could do nothing and not do anything hateful to your neighbor. You could just kind of sit at home and do absolutely nothing, and you would be innocent of this negative version. But Jesus doesn't call us to this negative version. He doesn't tell us to do nothing or just nothing hateful. Jesus is calling us to positive righteousness, Whatever we wish others to do for us, we are to do for them. And so we can't do nothing. We're to do good to others. And so when you think about this, how do we apply this? Well, if you aren't sure how to bless others, just think about what you yourself would like. What would you like others to do for you as a disciple of Christ? And so what, what the Lord is calling us to here is entirely unselfish living. And also, this is a, a great cure for discontentment. Think about this. You know, sometimes we can get thinking of how others have let us down. You know, I wish they would have done this. I, I wish they would have not done that to us. Well, when we think of those things, we should immediately stop that and instead do those things for the people that are in your mind or or, or do it to those people. And so when you start thinking about how others have, have maybe failed you in some way, to immediately stop that and, and do it for them. Turn it around. This little command really covers everything. It's a call to live entirely unselfishly. And if you think of what this verse requires, you will soon see that it fits with, with really all the other verses in this sermon that call us to this high standard of holiness and righteousness. It says, Whatever you wish whatever is is the word all or every and it speaks to every area of life whatever you wish and the, the new american standard has in everything or the the legacy standard bible says in all things this covers every area of life whatever we wish that others would do for us we are to also do for them and the verbs there wish and do those are present tense verbs kind of stressing the continual obligation of these things. We're to to keep doing those things continually, whatever they are. And this command applies to every disciple. You also do those things. It it summarizes then the the ethical teaching of the law and the prophets. It summarizes the, the righteous teaching of the Old Testament. And so we've been called to righteousness. We are Light, Jesus tells us, and we're to let our light shine so that when people see it, they'll give glory to our Father in heaven. Our righteousness is to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, 520. Jesus calls us to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 548. Our righteousness is to be practiced in sincerity of heart. Our aim is to please God and not men. Our righteousness is to be practiced in secret, even, even when no one sees, because we live before a God who sees in secret. Our righteousness is to be practiced even in the secret of our heart, even to the level of our thoughts and desires. Our righteousness, as we've seen in this sermon, is a, a God-centered righteousness. And as all true righteousness must be, it's, it's a God-centered thing. We're to pray, hallowed be your name. That is our righteousness. Our desire is for God's glory and that he would be lifted up and that he would be exalted. In our eyes, he is to be everything and we're to, to serve him and love him and be devoted to him. We're to trust him to care for us, but our focus is on, and first of all, it's on his kingdom and his righteousness. And that means we serve God by serving others. We're to lose our lives for Jesus' sake. Only only in doing that do we find true life, because true life is found in God. And the only way then that we can live as Jesus calls us to live in this sermon is by God empowering us to do so. And so our prayer, our entreaty is to be that, that we might live in this way. That's what we're to pray about. Jesus exhorts us to ask and seek and knock after this life. He encourages us that, that God will answer such a prayer. Just as a father in his example gives good things to his children, God will give good things to us. Again, ask and it will be given to you. give good things to those who ask him. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. As we come to an end of this section that you have ended it with such a hopeful promise to us. Father, these things in this sermon, to be like you, to, to live a, A perfect righteousness we know that they're beyond us and we know that that we will have sin in our lives in this world and that we will never be as righteous as as we want to be that we are those who hunger and thirst for it but still father we thank you that you answer our prayers and that by your grace when we ask it will be given when we seek we will find when we knock it will be opened father we pray that you would increase our faith and help us to believe this even more We pray that you, we, you, we would see this in our lives and in answered prayers. And just together now in this moment, we ask, Lord, help us as you told us to, help us to live this way that you have called us to, to not be anxious, to love our enemies, to, to bless everyone, to live in such a way that, that we live purely for your glory and your honor in this world, that our, our first the thing that we seek would be your kingdom and your righteousness. That our our first prayer would be, Father, hallowed be your name. That our focus would be singly on the glory of God. That the the lamp of our body would be uh, this this vision and focus on on living for you and serving you and loving you, being devoted to you, Father. We pray that you would do this in our lives, and we thank you that you have promised to answer such a prayer.